Hello and welcome. My name's Stephen Dickens, and I'm your host for the I'm a Mainframer podcast, brought to you by the Linux Foundation's Open Mainframe Project. I'm looking forward to today's episode. I've got my dear friend and colleague on. Hi, John. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Stephen. After all this time, you finally have got me on the podcast. I'm excited to I'm excited to do it. What is it, John? Now is it five years? Six. Six. And Six I finally years. convinced you to come on the podcast. So we didn't do introductions. I'm a terrible host. <laughs> John Murtick from the Linux Foundation, program director for the Open Mainframe Project. John, that that's a great segue into the first question. Tell the listeners a little bit about yourself, your background, and what you do for the project. Yeah, so, you know, my background is just a technologist. I've been in open source for two decades. Um, if, if I wind back the clock, even a long time, I, you know, I first touched a computer with a TI-99 4A and a Tandy 100. And, you know, from there, and really just sort of developed a love of technology. Uh, I was a computer science grad from Kent State. And, you know, I kind of, this was, you know, think of this late 90s, early 2000s. This is when open source was taking off. So it was a great opportunity as I was coming out of school to start leveraging some of those technologies. I'm a PHP developer for a long time, uh, you know, doing a lot of web front end, you know, doing databases on the back end, kind of like a little bit of what we used to call in the old school days, a full stack developer. Uh, and over time, I think the one thing that I really found myself enjoying was just working in open source communities. I, you know, at Sugar CRM, I started going out and, you know, presenting on Sugar CRM places, a lot of like developer conferences and open source conferences. And one day the co-founder came up to me, he's like, hey, John, you want to be the community manager since you've been doing the job for a year already? And I said, sure, why not? Let's do that. Um, that was my transition into community leadership, which I did there for a number of years. And at the same time, I also got to spend some time doing their ISV program and help sort of rebooting that, which was a transition from there to doing that uh, at Bitnami um, for a little while. And, you know, then I was able to transition back to my roots in open source. Uh, you know, throughout a lot of time, I'd worked in a bunch of different capacities. I was served on the board of the OW2 consortium. I uh, served as the president of the Open Social Foundation for some time. And then coming back to the Linux Foundation, I, you know, had the fortitude of being able to be a part of a number of projects. But then one that was introduced to me by Laura Kempke was, hey, John, we have this open mainframe project. What do you think of that? And I'm like, well, I've worked with IBM before. This seems like a lot of fun. Let's try it. And, uh, you know, to be honest, of, of a project that, you know, many could have said, hey, this is the afterthought one. It has been the it has been one of the ones that I have really had the most personal, uh, I guess, gratification from in a lot of different ways. Uh, being able to see mentees in Atlanta, you know, young people and their kind of excited faces to get involved in mainframe and uh, whatnot. So, and I've had the fortune of working across a bunch of industries. I mean, many in the mainframe audience know I'm in the open mainframe project, but I also work in projects across the motion picture industry, the energy industry, and I kind of help in some of our other efforts as well. So I, I wear a lot of different hats here, but I've really tried to spend a lot of time helping get this project to where it needs to go to, you know, really be where the mainframe community wants it is like the center point of open source here. 
So don't worry, John, we're going to come back to Star Wars and special effects a little bit later. (laughs) Yeah, so don't worry. I'm not going to let that one go. But so talk to me a little bit. You're and you and I go back from the first time you were involved in the project. So I I know this history, but it'd be really good to get kind of your perspective. I think you described yourself as a full stack developer. So let's kind of use that as the term. Mm -hmm. You're a full stack developer coming into the mainframe space kind of maybe six years ago what's the sort of preconceived ideas the notions like this mainframe technology i'm maybe not new i'm maybe new to this Mm -hmm. there's some baggage i'm assuming talk us through the kind of mindset of the first sort of two or three months as you're figuring out what this platform's all about and and what the community's like Sure. And, and for full candidness, there's a lot of gaps between, you know, when I was a good full stack developer and, and me getting involved in the open mainframe project, um, you, you don't want to see much of my code anymore. <laughs> but uh, yeah, no, it was kind of interesting because, I, you know, to be honest, I just, I didn't know what to expect mm-hmm. because I've, I've just seen so many different technology areas. I've always had appreciation for different architectures, you know, I mean, every, you know, just seeing what's unique and what's different. Like I've always had, you know, an appreciation for Apple and, and not necessarily, you know, because of, you know, what we'd think of it today, but, you know, the power PC and the, you know, 6,800 K Motorola architectures, like I find different architectures as very fascinating. So, you know, getting into this, I didn't know really what to expect. Mm-hmm. I, I knew this was a technology that was at the cornerstone of really powering, um, you know, so much of the finance industry as they begun to unpack it. I began to realize like really how important it is. Um, Len, Len would tell me, Len Santolucia would tell me, he's like, John, we would sit down at this and he would say, John, you know, the cloud could go away. We'd all be inconvenienced and everything, you know, but what we would live, if the mainframes went away, our civilization would fall apart. And it, it sounds kind of funny when you're saying it in that way, but when you start to like break apart of, what all of the things a mainframe, you know, what parts of uh, technology infrastructure mainframes used for, like credit card processing, transportation, things like that. He's not wrong. Like I, that, that's a very, very valid point. So yeah, it, it, it's, it's just really, really fascinating. And as I got more into it, I think the technology was sort of one of just, you know, understanding what it's all about, the power of these machines. But then I think the other thing that, really at first sort of surprised me is there is a bit in this world here where I don't think mainframe folks in the mainframe industry really felt all that appreciated. Uh, They didn't really, people really, you know, you would talk to them and they would say, oh, this workload's going off to distributed or it's going off to cloud. We got to stop that. And, you know, you start to unpack some of those conversations and what it really started to boil down to was, people didn't realize a lot of the appreciation for things. Um, you know, I, I forget who was telling me this. I think Jim Zemlin was telling me this one time where he said, you know, I would, I would go to, he said, I would go talk to my grandpa who was an old, um, you know, mainframe developer. Um, his grandpa actually took him to shares back uh, the share conference back in the sixties and seventies, which I didn't realize until I think it showed up on a, uh, an interview somewhere. And he, but he would go talk to his grandpa about, geez, like, this is this cool thing they're doing the Linux kernel. And this is their cool doing thing. This and his grandpa would just, there's like, ah, we did that in mainframe like 30 years ago. That isn't anything new. And it, it, it's funny to say that out loud, mm-hmm. but when you think about it, it's like, 
I can understand why these people don't feel very appreciated. Like there's so much of our computing legacy. I mean, open source legacy, the, the roots of open source go back to share in the 1950s of people being, you know, dropped this IBM, you know, machine on their lap and saying, hey, we got to figure out how to use it. And so these folks get together and share tips and things. And that's your first open source community. Um, so and I've heard you tell that story. And I, I think, I mean, I've heard you say that probably yeah. hundreds of times on main stages in presentations that you and I have done together. Let's let's just double click on that for the yeah. listeners for a moment, because it's something I hear you say quickly. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And we've now got some airtime to fill. So let's <laughs> fill some airtime. Um, but no, I mean, all joking aside, I think you've gone back and you've looked at that community and share in some depth. You've mm-hmm. done the research, and I think not many people have. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you went through it quickly there. Can you give us the kind of unpacked version of that and kind of how the share community kind of probably is the first structured open source community way before the Linux Foundation and even its prior incarnations? It'd be really interesting, I think, for this group and the listeners here to get your perspective on that. Sure. Yeah. So, you know, really it was, and I'm trying to remember, I would know this is the IBM 709-907. I always forget the machine. Somebody, an audience member will correct me later. But uh, this was in a room, I believe in Santa Monica, California, Los Angeles, California. And, uh, you know, that group got together and said, we're we're working on this new machine. We got this new machine, you know, we're, and effectively think of it almost as like a user group at that time. Like I wouldn't, Mm -hmm. you know, I wouldn't think it is so much as how we would think of an open source community today, but it was really just a user group. So these people were coming together, sharing ideas, sharing tips and tricks. And this continued, Uh, you know, they met. I think in the early days, probably annually, and, and they probably increased it even more over the time. But this was a way, because again, these were new machines. This was new hardware. This was a whole new paradigm that mm-hmm. people just didn't know too much about. And connecting these people together was that, that way that this technology began to talk, uh, you know, take off. Now, another byproduct is as people were using this technology, they would have code. Like they would have ways that they did things. They would have little code snippets. Um, You know, again, this wouldn't be something of today where we would go download it from a website or a GitHub or something like that, but it would, you know, be on a a microfiche. I mean, I probably, I don't know if a punch card, but, you know, tooling like that um, or tapes uh, that it would be existing on. So many of that then started to get collected and it would get just shared amongst each other, right? Everything was very public domain there. So there wasn't any concept of like open source licensing. It was just, let's share it. And if you really want to roll back, that also sort of paralleled software in general at the time. Uh, I won't go into sort of the nuances and depths of, you know, some of the legislation that happened, I think in the late sixties, early seventies, that sort of changed some of that. But if you go back to that period of time, really you bought the hardware and you got all the software, including the source code for free. Like that mm-hmm. was just all part of the package. Um, and even Tinkerous machines like the, you know, original Apple one and things like that, you know, you would get like these thick manuals of all of the schematics and, you know, programming bits and things like that. So you could just start rolling with it. And, and mainframe was the exact same way. So, so anyways, a lot of this material started to develop, gets shared among uh, amongst each other. And the first natural problem starts to happen where's kind of like a place I could go find it. So, you know, you might say, Hey, who had a routine for doing this? And so you all had to ask around the group, 
again, you didn't have like an internet chat form to do it. So you're probably like calling people up or, you know, asking a friend of a friend. And so it, it takes a while to track all this thing, this stuff down. And so right around the time of around 1970, um, a guy named Arnie uh, Casaligo realizes, hey, what if I just pull this together in a collection that we can just share with everybody? And he does that. And it's a project called CBT Tape. Which the seems, first GitHub, basically. The first right. GitHub, and really, if you think about it, the first open source project, like or one of the first. I mean, there's going to be somebody who's going to find something different, but for the for for the sake of this story, well, it's called the first open source project. Um, CBT, by the way, standed for the name of his employer, Connecticut Bacon Trust, which I think is defunct and has been bought by three or four different people. Actually, I heard the the, the name is came back, but it's an entirely different name. But that's that's a whole other aside. But, you know, this is effectively that first project. It's a way that he was pulling all of these pieces together in a canonical tape that someone could get. And then that way, you, you yeah, you had that first GitHub that people could use for, people could contribute back to. Um, you could get the tape. Like, it, it's funny, he was showing me, um, you know, Sen Golov, who's leading the project now, was showing me even some of the letters that Arnie would get. And, you know, one of them was like from the U.S. Postal Service, you know, had like, a couple of bucks in it and said, Hey, please send me you know, a tape. It wasn't quite that trite, but you know, that's how you would get it. Like you couldn't download these things for anyone. You had to get a tape. So you would send a couple of dollars to cover postage and the cost of a tape. And you know, you'd get the latest release and you'd be able to use all those tools. And, and that's how that collaboration began to start. So if you think about it, like all of the early collaborations, the, the, the concepts of collaborations that we think in open source are so automatic, they were pioneered in the 50s, 60s, and 70s um, in the mainframe community, uh, which nobody really talks so much about. They, most people, they point back to, okay, the Berkeley Labs and you know some of the free software movement and things like that. But so much of this was pioneered back in the mainframe community. And that CBT tape is now a project under the open mainframe project structure, isn't it? So Correct. you just want to add that final bit of the story for us? Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, So, you know, this project, like I said, it's been continuing on for decades. And uh, as sort of that group of maintainers was in retirement age, uh, they saw, hey, we want to continue this forward for decades to come. And we need sort of the infrastructure and support to do this. And they came to us. And this was actually just about a year ago, um, you know, a year ago. Well, we're recording this in September. So a year ago, I don't know that when the date of it will go live. Um, but about a year ago, they came to us and said, Hey, we, we need a home for this. And we were able to help provide it. We were able to get the mainframe infrastructure. And it's been really interesting because I get, I get phone calls from Sam and emails from him, um, fairly regularly. He's, he's, he's a really good communicator. And he's so, he's so fun to talk to. And mm-hmm. he'll just tell me, he's like, John, I'm just blown away. Like we have all sorts of, you know, retirees and all sorts of other folks that I've just, you know, never even heard of. And they're coming and adding new, uh, you know, new tools and things to the tape. And this has just been so wonderful. And these people have never had access, didn't know how they'd ever get access to a system. And now they do. And this is, you know, you all are just doing amazing work. And, and not that I'm, you know, trying to like pat the project on the back there, but it's, it's for us, it was a real special thing that we were able to take that part of the legacy of mainframe and find a path to help continue that forward. Because I mean, that's, I mean, you've been around in mainframe a while, Steve. I mean, I think that's the one thing that you can you can say is very true is this ecosystem has a strong legacy that people care about. And I th- and you've heard me say this hundreds of times. 
I think this community existed before. Mm-hmm. I think what the Open Mainframe Project, for me at least, is is just the center of gravity for that community. Mm-hmm. All of the, I mean, you've been to share multiple times. We've had beers and coffees and and multiple trips to share over the years. That community in the hall, everybody knows everybody. It's a, it's a sort of real community space. So I think the community existed. They just and and you talked about it perfectly there. They maybe didn't have the tools for collaboration. You know the 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 access to infrastructure, the ability to share code seamlessly, the ability for competitors to collaborate on code in the open. I think. It was there, it just wasn't supercharged, and I think that's what the, I see as the benefit of the Open Mainframe Project, that it's been able to tap that rich vein of community that was already there mm-hmm. and just give it the ability to be supercharged and, and, and have a center of gravity. No, you're exactly right. I mean, it's it's always been there. They they I, I mean, I think it, when they when they look at the concept of saying open source, it's it's a bit daunting in some ways to mm-hmm. them. Um, I remember, I think we were both there in St. Louis when Zoe was announced. And one of the, <laughs> I remember what I said to that room. Yes. Yes. I, I, well, a, I, I remember one of the, well, I remember two things, one on stage and uh, I, I, I can't remember who it was. It might've been Greg Locko. I, I don't know. Somebody will correct me about this later, but there was a statement made from on stage to the audience of saying, you know, while we as organizations contributed this initial code, and this was um, Broadcom, then CA, um, IBM, and Rocket, this is your project, pointing out to the audience. And I remember right afterwards, we went to like another session where it was kind of like a, a Q&A with some of the first sort of like leadership group of Zoe. And I just remember a couple of people standing up and just, just I think one people, person even said the words is like, I'm still processing in my brain what this means. Well, you know, I think I remember, I remember that meeting and somebody asked, what's the roadmap for this? And they were asking the vendors what the roadmap was. <laughs> yeah. And I, I remember I was standing on, I think the right-hand side, I've got a weird memory like this. I remember where I was in the room. I'm like halfway back, standing on the side. Yeah. And I think I just turned to the room and went, you guys own the roadmap, not them on the stage. Yeah, I remember that. And, You're right. Yeah. And the, and the whole room kind of does a double take and goes, what's yeah. that crazy idiot saying on the side of the room? And I had to kind of elaborate the point. Mm-hmm. It's like the roadmap is where the community takes this piece of code, mm-hmm. not what Rocket, IBM and Broadcom say the roadmap's going to be. Right. And I think that was the first time that realization had happened to a room of mainframe people mm-hmm. because the vendors, they do a fantastic job and they've got some amazing roadmaps and they create some fantastic software. And the community wouldn't exist without their involvement and sponsorship. But something like Zoe, as an example, I think it's been really fascinating for me to watch the mainframe community kind of see a piece of code come from a crowdsourced community where there's not a vendor dragging it along. Mm -hmm. And then put it onto these mission critical machines that, as you say, mention, you know, run the world's financial systems or airlines or retailers or insurance. I mean, so we'll go there for a moment, Zoe. Mm -hmm. It's a huge part of the project. Mm -hmm. I mean, what's, what's been your sort of experience with Zoe over the last few years? 
Zoe is sort of, I think, if if you want to paint the picture of the mainframe community at that point in time in in twenty eighteen in St. Louis, and map them th- sort of through their journey of recognizing, appreciation, appreciating, and you know, kind of embracing open source. Zoe has sort of been like the the bellwether for that in a lot of ways. Uh, and, and it's been really fascinating. You know, I think, you know, I think even in the early days of Zoe, there was the, the first challenge of how do we bring together, you know, in many senses, like different code bases and sort of integrated one and, and not like vastly, vastly different, but really things that were driven from different vendors and how do these kind of all fit together? How do we make decisions together? Um, how do we, you know, look to get, you know, downstream vendors using this? Because I mean, if I look at like an open source project, and again, millions and millions of them out there, all of them are entirely different. And we at the Linux Foundation, we tend to try to focus on the ones that have a large impact on our society in some way or another. And I think Zoe definitely fits very well within that, that realm, obviously. There's always some sort of like characteristics we start to look at. I mean, one we look at is like what the vendor diversity is, like how many different vendors are involved. And that's more of just an aspect of if it's all one vendor and that one vendor decides I'm not into this anymore, um, the project kind of falls in its face. If you have three or four or five and not any one is, you know, a huge amount of the contributing base they can leave, it's going to be, a, it's going to be uncomfortable. I mean, you lose like 20, 30% of your committers. I think that, that, that's, that's not something that's pleasurable, but you have a path that you can still continue. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so Zoe was set up for that way in, in the early days. And I think they kind of have went through this really good cycle, this cycle of like wrestling with it, like, okay, how do we grow that out and how do we get more vendors in? And now we've seen, you know, things like Zebra from Viacom Infinity and the Workflow Wizard from BMC coming in and we've seen other contributions um, from a number of other different organizations coming in. And so now we're starting to see that start to spread out some, Mm -hmm. which is one really, really positive sign. I think another that I start to look at is, you know, governance and leadership, you know, in the early days of this, you know, it was very much ran like a vendor product. Um, And I, you know, as you're getting something out of the gate and, you know, where the mentality and, and experience level of, of that group was made a ton of sense. Mm-hmm. But I think after time, they realized if we're working in an open source way, we're working very open, you know, all of our meetings are open and all of our work is transparent, our decision making is transparent. And our intention is to get more people involved, but especially people, they're going to add technical contributions we need to make sure this is technologist focused and centric. And mm-hmm. one of the things that we did earlier this year, well, they put in place, and these were from discussions that started, you know, almost a year before that, uh, was sort of transitioning and ensuring that the technical leads within the projects, um, as they call it, squads, um, so the different components of Zoe, were actually sort of the ones that were driving the direction of the project. Now, they weren't completely doing it in a vacuum. Um, you know, they had, you know, it, they have advisory help from, you know, several of the vendors. They really looked to tap into the community and um, some of the downstream users. But it was a really, really interesting opportunity here to, to shift this into a very technology focus. Because if you think about Zoe, yes, it's huge for ZOS. 
It's huge mm. for the mainframe. It's it's making amazing inroads. It's it's putting mainframe on the map for DevOps. I mean, it's it's doing a lot of great pieces in there. But if you look at sort of those other technologies that are moving at that same pace, you see a technology centric at the middle. And that's what drives it forward. That's what drives a lot of these great projects. I mean, you know, it's one of the things I've, if you look at different open source projects and you say, okay, why is one successful versus a not? And it usually comes down to, you know, you know, the quality of the space, the quality of the code and things like that. And then also the ecosystem around it. And I think Zoe, we've been able to kind of figure out both of those pieces relatively well. And it's setting us up an area to be successful. I mean, and, and I think it's also been a really healthy exercise for the mainframe community to kind of just mm-hmm. go through and learn that. And now we've seen projects, you know, like Geneva ERS and the COBOL programming course that both have just recently graduated. Um, and we've seen some of the other newer projects that are coming in. It's more in an incubating stage. And they look at Zoe and they look at sort of the, the road they paved um, in the mainframe world. And it's sort of given them a sense of like, this is how we could move forward. Like this is, this is how we could make this work. So John, we've, we've, we've covered the, the open mainframe project. We've covered Zoe, we've covered open source. I said, I'd go back to star Wars. I knew this was coming. Dang it. <laughs> so we're going to take a couple of minutes as a commercial break. And, and lighten the mood and, and every I, I, men of our age are Star Wars fans by, sure we are. by birthright I think um, I know the story of what you do for that world but give, it, give our listeners a, just a brief insight into what you do in the other parts of your day job and how you work with the Academy Arts guys and and, and those guys, because I think it's just fascinating for our listeners. So just indulge me with a bit of talk about special effects and Star Wars for a moment. I could certainly do that. Um, you know, and I, this is a project I was, I was been very fortunate to be a part of. So the project is called the Academy Software Foundation. Uh, it was actually, it was actually launched at the same time as Zoe, ironically, um, in 2018. And it came together as that industry, which Many people don't realize, well, many people don't realize two things. One is that at the top 100 grossing movies in Hollywood of all time all have some degree of visual effects in them. You have to go down to, and this has been a couple of years, and so these numbers move around, but you have to go down to like somewhere in like the high hundreds, at least this was a couple of years ago, it could have changed, to actually find the first one that doesn't. Um, as a trivia question, if you're ever, you know, wanting to quiz somebody, the name of that movie is Mamma Mia. But it, it shows to their visual effects are a cornerstone of movies. They also, um, and many times, have been very expensive. Um, and that's where you've seen a lot of technology developments that have happened over the decades um, within that industry. Interestingly enough, there's a plenty of that that's actually open source. And many of the key studios and, you know, vendors and other players in the space have been building open source for a long time. The challenge that they were running into was being able to collaborate across a number of these vendors um, because, you know, some of these projects, which were very heavily dependent upon in the industry, they were just hard for people to get involved and contribute to and, you know, vendors to invest in and things like that. OpenEXR was a great one, a great example of that. 
huge, you know, EXR is an image format and it's a technology that's depended on in just about all sorts of, you know, media, even outside of, you know, film. Um, Open VDB is a technology that the best way I can describe it is, is if you're watching a movie and you see an explosion that's simulated, it's because of Open VDB. Um, that's, that's kind of the best way that I can do it. Um, and even a project like Open Color IO, which, you know, focuses on color matching and, and things like that, Open Timeline. Anyways, I could go on and on on that. Material X, however, um, is the one very much directed to Star Wars, because um, much of the Many of the scenes that were drawn and built, um, especially in the uh, the final three movies of the of the, the final trequel, um, were actually built using Material X. But anyways, so I got involved in that group there as they were really trying to wrestle with like how do we pull this together? How do we get more people um, involved? And how do we get studios collaborating across? And that's really where that whole foundation was formed. And it's done a lot of amazing work of pulling that together. Like all right now, I think they have about seven or eight projects at the moment and all of them were actually, well, most of them are actually existing projects. One was a, a brand net new one, but all of them have experienced significant growth moving into a vendor neutral setting. And I guess for the listeners at home, what I mean by vendor neutral is as opposed to like an open source project that's, you know, maybe, we'll say your employer and be facetious on here. Futurum decides, hey, I have some open source code. I'm going to open a Futurum GitHub. I'm going to put it out there. And that's my project. Um, Futurum owns that code. I mean, they're putting it out there in an open source license, but effectively they're the owners of it. When we talk vendor neutral, we mean a simple level, Futurum isn't the full owner, but you have multiple different constituents that are contributing to this the overall sort of assets and trademarks and meanings like that that are owned by sort of a third party, sort of a, a holding entity. Um, in this case, it's Linux Foundation. But the model that they use there is as people contribute code, they effectively own the pieces of code they contribute. You don't sign over your IP. You don't sign over your copyright. You don't give them a license. So it creates this like intertwined sort of piece here. Um, which has a couple nice advantages. One, it's a lower barrier for people to contribute because um, I, 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 going to your company and saying, hey, I need to sign off my IP to somebody else um, is going to get a lot of legal eyebrows. Mm-hmm. But more importantly, it also adds assurance that that upstream project can't change its license unless all of the contributors agree to it. So that adds a bit of control there that the community as a whole is in control of where it goes, not one vendor. And that's mm-hmm. when we start to talk about vendor neutral. The Linux kernel has worked this way for decades. Um, if you contribute a line to the Linux kernel, congratulations, you are you have your copyright in it. Um, if you contribute a line to Kubernetes, congratulations, you have a small little ownership in it. Um, you, same actually is with Zoe. If you contribute a line of code to Zoe, congratulations, you have your ownership in it. So, you know, that sort of model there really ensures that a project can grow beyond, you know, just the scope of where one vendor, it can grow broader and it can actually build ecosystems and stuff with it. And so that's something we have seen that industry really, really strongly embrace. Um, and now that industry as it's kind of turning forward and, and looking at, um, you know, what are the new ways that media is going to be driven and consumed, you know, things like virtual production, um, you know, 3D, um, 4D immersive, 
all of these sorts of things are starting to come to light. And many of those technologies are all driven through open source. And if we take that same parallel across a lot of different industries, it works really well in the vendor neutral sense because it gives everyone a base they can all trust on. They don't have to worry about somebody pulling the rug out from underneath them. Um, and it really helps move technology forward. Well, I think there's a whole other podcast where we spend time talking about explosions in Star Wars movies. Oh, yeah. But, yeah, but, yeah. I, but I'm conscious of time and I've got to get us back to regularly scheduled programming. So, and But I think it was really useful there to take us out of the mainframe specific world for a moment mm-hmm. and, and look at the same challenge around how people collaborate around code in a vendor neutral way. Mm-hmm explaining something that everybody can get their heads around, you know, three studios collaborating on what explosions look like in movies. Mm -hmm. We can take ourselves and understand that and then Mm -hmm. translate that back to the mainframe space. So I got to bring us, start to bring us home here. A couple of questions I always ask towards the end of this, John, and I'm really interested for your answers. You get to go back to John Murtick age, sort of 22. You're fresh out of college. You know, you're still wearing those funky T-shirts and have got the and, <laughs> and got the sideburns and you're probably knowing you look exactly the same as you, you did back then. What advice would you be giving to your younger self? You've got the experience of, and wisdom, but you've also now got the opportunity to go back and speak to that 22-year-old John Murtick and, and give that person some advice. So what would that be? Besides invest in masks into Google. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Buy some Bitcoin circa 2009, maybe. A, yeah. Apart Fair from, point. Yeah. Apart from um, investing in vice. Yes. Yes. Um, you know, I, I think, I think the one thing I, I would, I would definitely, you know, tell myself is sort of this, this whole path through technology in your career is, is a journey. Mm-hmm. Uh, you don't know where it's going to end up. I mean, you know, I've always had a passion in this space, but I, I couldn't have said, you know, back in, in 2001, you know, when after I walked off the stage at Kent State University and got my diploma, that I would be uh, a, a, a leader within the mainframe space. Like nobody would, somebody would have told me that I'd be like, okay, maybe, I guess, <laughs> like I wouldn't have bought that. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I, I, and I often tell this even to people as they're thinking about their careers is it's just your career just is sometimes it's a little bit of a winding road and you just see opportunities along the way. And, you know, you kind of have to trust your gut and sort of believe in those and, and move forward. And, and so I guess I tell myself is just to like embrace that and not, you know, be fearful of that because these sort of cool opportunities, then they come to you, you sort of know when those are happening and, you know, to take advantage of them. Um, mm-hmm. I would, I would really kind of, you know, focus on that and, and, you know, just enjoy the ride with it because it's, you know, you, you can look back and you can tell a lot of the good stories and things like that, but it's, it's so important to enjoy those in the moment and enjoy when those things happen. That's just even more than your career. I mean, that's just, you know, personal life as well, like live in the moment and enjoy that in the moment. Um, Try to do a good job of it. Obviously I've not done an amazing job in a lot of cases, but I would really reinforce that with myself. Yeah, I think that's solid advice. And then my final question for you, John, and I, I, I could carry on talking for hours yeah. here. We'd spend a lot more time in those hours talking about explosions on Star Wars oh, sure, movies yeah. than we would mainframe. But, you know, I've got to bring us home here. I think you've got a unique perspective on where the mainframe is, its role in the world. 
Where do you see the mainframe three, five years out from there? Well, contrary to Stu- uh, Stuart Alsop, it's it's still going to be here. Um, but, <laughs> You're not uh, going to make him eat those words? He's already done it once. I mean, yeah. you know, I, anyways, um, you know, it's, I, I so I, I take my Brian Windhorst stand with these things as I do not like to make predictions. Mm-hmm. What I will say is, as I've looked at the trends that have happened just in the six years, if I look at the trends in the last six years of this project, and when I got involved in it, there is, you know, definitely a sense of we're, we're, we're trying things new. We're trying to, you know, branch out, you know, in the general mainframe populace, I think there was still a little bit of a very unappreciated view of who mainframers are and what the value they have, which, you know, this podcast here has done an amazing job of showcasing. It has really brought out those stories so that people could realize like, this is, this is a for real thing. Like this is a, a thing that is something you can spend your time in, spend your career in and, and walk out, you know, very happily. If I keep looking out more years from now, I'm anticipating those convergences to keep growing stronger. You know, we're uh, at Open Mainframe Summit, um, which is ahead of us as we record, but I'm sure when this goes live, we'll be in our rear view mirror. Um, you know, we, we very purposely selected keynote speakers that were one rung outside of the mainframe sphere. You know, we picked someone from edge computing. Um, we pulled someone from the contiguous delivery cloud, um, you know, cloud native delivery, um, you know, space, um, you know, the open source and finance, open cultures and things like that. And what I'm sensing to see is that, you know, the thing that I always toss out there is, Enterprises, forward-thinking enterprises are thinking about their infrastructure in a hybrid way. Like they don't buy from one vendor. This isn't the 70s or 80s where you wait for the IBM rep to show up and it has this whole old thing of and you buy whatever you know tells you to do. Okay. And that's not not to disparage IBM, but you know, it's you have more choices. Like the joke mm-hmm. I used to have is we live in an era where the it's like the cheesecake factory of computing choices we have like there's just like a never-ending menu with steak and pasta and everything you can imagine and enterprises put that together in unique ways so they can engage their customers better they can do business better and i think now we're seeing mainframe start to get so much back in that conversation that we're only going to see that grow we're only going to see that become, you know, more prominent out there. And, you know, we're going to see mainframe coming from this, you know, what is it? It's an afterthought. Oh, it's something my grandpa used to work on um, to, hey, this is something that if we as a business have it, we're going to be investing more into it because there's a lot of valuable insights we can gain from that. But we are also seeing it as an execution engine for growth. Mm-hmm. So we're seeing this as a way of, wow, we have this infrastructure here. How can we invest more into it to do all of those things, better engage our customers, better be efficient internally, um, you know, you know be a, have, it, have that as a unique um, you know, differentiator. I mean, you know, wouldn't it be a sort of a cool thing in like three to five years to saying, you know, a company like raising their hand up and saying, I bought a mainframe and I am proud of, like, I'm, I'm not proud of it. It kind of sounds weird, but I'm buying this and this is keeping me ahead of my customers because of buying that. Like, yeah. and not that again, I'm going away from the soothsayer. I'm pulling my Brian Windhorse card here, 
but I am seeing the trends are heading that direction and I would see that continue to flow. Yeah, I would agree. John, this has been a fantastic conversation. You've been an awesome guest. Thank you for coming on the show. Thank you for inviting me. It's only taken me six years, but we got there eventually. You know, I can only dodge your request for so long, I suppose. Right? <laughs> yeah, I, I would, <laughs> uh, it's been met, said many you, times. You've interviewed but, uh, every other really good person in mainframe, and you were left with me. So yeah, it's, um, yeah, <laughs> This was the bottom of the barrel. No, yeah. I mean, j- joking aside, John, this has been fantastic. You've been an awesome guest. You've been listening to the I'm a Mainframer podcast brought to you by the Linux Foundation's Open Mainframe Project. If you like what you've heard today, please click and subscribe. I'd love a five-star rating. It's good for the algorithm, so please do that. And check back next time when we'll be coming to you again with another fantastic guest. Thank you for joining me, and we'll speak to you soon.